Edward, Edmund, George, Richard. These four names belong to a set of brothers whose lives were consumed by England's Wars of the Roses. In this episode, we begin exploring their story. Hey everyone, Christine here to talk to you about one of my favorite sets of historical brothers, often referred to as the Brothers York. They lived in the 15th century and were born into a family at the center of royal politics. Two became kings of England, and all of them died during the Wars of the Roses. There's so much drama here that I'm splitting it across two episodes. You may recognize a few bits from my episode about Anne Neville that aired in April of 2021 because she was the wife of one of these brothers. In fact, it was your enthusiasm for that episode, dear listeners, which made me decide to return to the Wars of the Roses. Don't forget, if you want the captioned version of this episode, you can find it on youtube.com slash footnotinghistory or footnotinghistory.com. Also, if you'd like to contribute to helping keep footnoting history going, please consider becoming a patron. You can find information about that and the perks that come with it on our website as well. Also, starting in April, we'll be accepting questions for our first ever listener Q&A episode, but more details about that in our next one. Now, let's get started. In the mid-1400s, Richard, Duke of York, was arguably the most powerful member of the English nobility. He had money and land and a direct connection to the crown. Like the current king, Henry VI, he was a descendant of King Edward III. On his father's side, York was a descendant of Edward III's fourth surviving son. And on his mother's side, he was a descendant of Edward III's second surviving son. This gave him two ties back to Edward III, and a pretty good claim to the crown. Richard, Duke of York, who I will likely be calling York moving forward, was married to a woman named Cecily Neville, who was herself also a descendant of Edward III on her mother's side. So many people in this episode are somehow related. York and Cecily were, as we mentioned, high nobility, and they had a great many children together, four of which are the brothers we are talking about today and in our next episode. They are... Edward, born in 1442, Edmund, born in 1443, George, born in 1449, and Richard, born in 1452. With a 10-year gap between the eldest and the youngest, there would no doubt have been a variation in how much each boy was aware of the political goings-on during the 1450s, with Edward and Edmund knowing the most, and George and Richard learning more about how to walk and talk than how to deal with conflict with the king. But conflict is what was happening. In the early 1450s, King Henry VI and his wife, Queen Margaret of Anjou, were still childless. This caused some people to view Richard, Duke of York, to be a candidate for heir to the throne unless the king and queen produced a child. In 1453, two significant things happened. The queen was pregnant, and the king became incapacitated. Although we still don't know exactly what happened to Henry VI, we do know that he was unable to do his duties. When Margaret gave birth to their long-awaited son, Edward, Henry was in no fit state to celebrate the occasion. Aware of her husband's situation, she hoped to become regent and run things, but that task was not given to her. It was given to York in 1454. 
He watched the creation of young Prince Edward as Prince of Wales, therefore recognizing him as heir to the throne, and became protector and defender of the realm and church. Now, to Richard and George, this probably meant nothing, as they were still in the nursery. But the elder sons, Edward and Edmund, were aware of what was going on with their fathers, and therefore, by extension, their own status in the country, and even involved in some of his actions. By the end of the year, however, Henry VI was back to coherency, and York was unceremoniously shut out from the inner circle of political power. The relationship between York and the Lancasters had been rocky for some time, and the issues of distrust between them, after all, York was as much a potential rival as he was a professed ally, thanks to his blood ties to the throne, it festered until the armed conflict often seen as the start of the Wars of the Roses erupted in 1455. It was the first Battle of St. Albans, which saw the Yorkists win and take possession of the king. Despite this, the cycle of being in and out of the inner circle continued. Soon, it became clear that the sides were never going to see eye to eye again, and the rift was going to involve more warfare. Thus, the Wars of the Roses, which has its name derived from the Yorks having the symbol of the White Rose and the Lancasters having the symbol of the Red Rose, amped up. Which side you support? and which rose you prefer, is something that historians and history enthusiasts alike still take sides about to this day. I'm a white rose girl myself, which is why I tend to do episodes on York and his family, though there are many great stories also to be told about the Lancastrians. So, in 1459, while York is at the center of things, his wife and children have their fates hanging in the balance. In that year, York decided it wasn't the best idea to keep Cecily and the younger children at the family home, so he had them move to Ludlow Castle. This is significant for two reasons. First, it is quite possible that it was the first time George and Richard really had the situation impact their lives directly. And second, because it put them in the presence of their elder brothers. Edward, who had been made the Earl of March, and Edmund, who was the Earl of Rutland, had been set up at Ludlow for several years by this point. They were about 17 and 16 respectively, and had spent very little time honestly, if any, with their younger brothers. Unfortunately, much of the details about what it was like to be a child member of the York household are lost to us, but we do know that by now, Edward and Edmund were old enough to help their father's campaign, and George and Richard, while too young to be much use on the battlefield, were being exposed to the family situation more than ever before. By July of 1460, the Yorkists defeated Henry VI's army at Northampton and captured the king. It wasn't long before York sought to control his destiny by becoming Henry VI's heir, taking Edward of Lancaster out of the running. You can imagine how that sat with Queen Margaret. Only a few months later, the Lancaster supporters and the Yorkists met on the battlefield again, this time at Wakefield. It was a bloodbath that changed the trajectory not only of the Wars of the Roses, but of the lives of York's children. The Yorkists lost at Wakefield, and they also suffered two deaths in the family. The first, and more historically significant, was the death of Richard, Duke of York, the brother's father. The other was that of the second brother, Edmund, Earl of Rutland. At the time of his death, he was only about 17, which often makes him a footnote in many histories of the Wars of the Roses. He did not live long enough to make a major impact on the political situation, which understandably makes many historians view him as less important to discuss. But to me, it is important to pause and mention him, and indeed give him a paragraph in my script of notes, because his death means that Edward not only lost his father, 
but the brother who he was closest to in age and had likely spent the most time with growing up. Edmund may be the family's biggest footnote, but we all know that's part of what makes him so interesting. What would have happened if Edmund lived is one of my biggest what-ifs when it comes to studying history. Unfortunately, it cannot be answered with any degree of authority. Edmund was probably killed while trying to flee the battle, and according to some versions of the story, he was killed by someone who did it in retaliation for the death of their own relative at St. Albans. York and the others had their bodies beheaded and displayed on spikes outside of York for all to see. The Duke of York was given the mocking addition of a paper crown. Was this an entirely unheard of treatment after a battle? No. Did it show just how little love there was between the sides? Absolutely. The deaths of Richard, Duke of York, and his second son, Edmund, left one adult male from the family to take control of things, 18-year-old Edward. And, with the aid of his father's allies, he absolutely carried on. Eventually, Edward won a super-significant battle against the Lancastrians at Towton, and in June of 1461, he was officially crowned Edward IV, the first Yorkist king of England. As a new monarch, he was in an interesting position. Typically, one expects that when you become king, it's because the last monarch passed away. Well, Henry VI was still very much alive, and he had escaped with his family to Scotland. This wasn't great. When you become king through battle, conflict, or usurpation, you don't necessarily want the old king to be knocking around somewhere. It gives people an opposing person to rally around, which is troublesome. Luckily, Edward did have those allies I mentioned. One was Richard Neville, Earl of Warwick, who was known as the Kingmaker for his prominent roles in the changing monarchies of the period, and he was a big help suppressing remaining dissenters. Meanwhile, Edward needed to establish himself off of the battlefield. One method that became very characteristic of his whole reign was that he would try to woo people who were against him, like Lancastrian supporters, and if they came to his side, he would welcome them into his circle as allies instead of heaping punishments upon them. This worked sometimes, and failed others, but when it succeeded, it helped him build a circle of people who had his back and could act as his agents. It also helped with his optics. He appeared to be trying to bring peace to a place that had known a lot of fighting in recent years. There was, of course, something else on people's minds. What does every king need? If you guessed a queen, you are correct. A single king has to make his marriage choice carefully. The king's marriage is the ultimate card to play for diplomatic purposes. It would be wise for him to marry the sister or daughter of another ruler to create an alliance. It's a diplomatic chip, and one that Edward's circle was eager to use to their advantage. They thought, or at least they hoped, that Edward agreed. They were wrong. Edward IV was young and handsome, and he liked the ladies, and the ladies, at least some of them I'm sure, liked him. In the fall of 1464, when he attended a council at Reading, everyone still thought he was unmarried, but he wasn't. Edward revealed that back in the spring, he had married a woman named Elizabeth Gray. Born, and usually known as Elizabeth Woodville, the new Mrs. King Edward IV was a widow with two sons and a lot of siblings. There's been much speculation surrounding why he secretly married Elizabeth and why it took so long for him to admit that it happened. And a good deal of the talk swirls around it being a match of infatuation slash love. The motive doesn't matter as much as the fact that it happened, though. And not everyone was thrilled with this news. In terms of social and political hierarchy, Elizabeth was well below him. And this was also a local marriage that had absolutely zero international political benefit for the Yorkist throne. Although Elizabeth wasn't going anywhere, and was formally recognized as queen, 
Many remained upset that Edward had not made a more politically advantageous match. Edward did attempt to use Elizabeth's large family to his advantage. For example, he married off some of Elizabeth's sisters to gain aristocratic allies. But this did not establish the Woodvilles as beloved upper society. No, many of those closest to Edward weren't thrilled to see this family, which they viewed as a bunch of upstarts, suddenly in such close proximity to the king. Everything may not have been perfect in Edward's world, but he had his crown and his queen, and soon he had something, or rather someone else, Henry VI. Following a failed battle engagement, Henry VI was in hiding until he was discovered and taken into custody by Yorkist men and then housed in the Tower of London. It was a strict confinement, but he was allowed attendance and visitors. Anyway, for Edward IV, having physical control of Henry VI may not have removed him from being a figurehead for the Lancastrian cause, but it did help matters to not have him running around free. You'd think this might mean smooth sailing for Edward, but of course it didn't. In 1469, Richard Neville, Earl of Warwick and Kingmaker, broke from Edward IV, and Edward's brother George, by now Duke of Clarence, went with him. The rebellion of the two men was a big kick in the stomach to Edward. Now you may ask yourself, how on earth did George go from a child the last time he got mentioned to rebelling against his brother? As the Wars of the Roses progressed, George's role within the family shifted just as much as everyone else's. He went from being the third son, and therefore not super important, person in the Yorkist faction, to the brother of King Edward IV. And since Edward didn't have any children at the time of his coronation, George was initially his most likely heir. This was a big deal, making him much more important. This would eventually change as Edward and Elizabeth had children. Also in 1466, he ended his minority and entered the world of adults properly. He began developing Tutbury Castle in Staffordshire as one of his main seats, dealing with local disputes and setting his eyes on a bride. The bride he wanted, you may recall from my Anne Neville episode, was Isabel Neville, the elder daughter of Richard Neville, Earl of Warwick. Edward, as king, said no to this. George didn't appreciate that very much and grew closer and closer to Isabel's father, who also wasn't pleased that the match was denied. After all, as a great ally, why wasn't his daughter good enough to be married into the royal family? In addition to the marriage situation, Warwick wasn't a fan of the rise of the Woodvilles. Further, Edward and Warwick had differing views on who England should support in an ongoing dispute between France and Burgundy. This is a situation where things continued to snowball as a progression occurred from true allies to opponents. Warwick and George rebelled not just once, but twice. The first time, despite Edward's nixing of his dreams, George married Warwick's daughter, Isabel. There is even a brief period where Edward IV ended up captured by Warwick and George, but they weren't able to hold down the fort as rulers for long, especially since the Lancastrians smelled weakness and were rising up again, so Edward got to come out and rally the troops. As was Edward's way, he didn't come down too hard on Warwick and George, though he kept them from real political power and it looked for like a hot minute, maybe like things would be okay. But behind the scenes, the two men were still displeased, and they broke out in rebellion a second time. Now, they openly talked to Lancastrian queen Margaret of Anjou about restoring Henry VI, and Warwick married his other daughter, Anne of my other episode fame, to Henry's son and heir, Edward of Lancaster. Edward IV recognized this family split was not a good thing, and quietly tried to get George to come back to his side, because... Come on, what did George really have to gain from seeing Henry VI put back on the throne? 
No matter what he did, George would always be a York in the Lancastrian court if Henry VI was restored. Still, Warwick, George, and the Lancastrian faction struck back, getting Edward IV and his supporters to flee. Among Edward's biggest allies was his youngest brother, Richard, who had been made Duke of Gloucester years prior. Despite the decade difference in their ages, and the fact that Richard had trained in the ways of nobility by living in Warwick's home when he was younger, he never wavered in his dedication to Edward, which stood in stark contrast to George. Richard entered his majority in the late 1460s, just as George was starting to pull away from Edward and go towards Warwick. As such, Richard became an increasingly prominent fixture at Edward's side, and was with the king when he fled. The Lancastrian success with George on their side didn't last for long, though. In March 1471, Edward IV came back to England with Richard and their allies. George, who allegedly saw the light, defected from Warwick and reunited with his brothers, and Edward managed to once again get himself back on the throne. Soon, Edward's forces met Warwick's at the Battle of Barnet, and Warwick was killed in the battle, bringing that line of our plot to a close. Death does that sometimes. Then, Edward faced off against Queen Margaret's Lancastrian supporters at the Battle of Tewkesbury, and not only did he win that one, but rather conveniently, Henry VI's only son and heir, Edward of Lancaster, died there. Despite having two major opponents now out of the way, again, Henry VI was still alive. And as long as he was alive, problems were going to keep coming up. So it was time to end the Lancastrian threat for once and for all. After a life of ill health and then alternately being propped up as a king and hidden away in the tower, it was all over for Henry VI. Edward had him executed and buried at Chertsey Abbey. I know this is all a lot. I've just killed three major players for the opposition in like less than two minutes. But with all of them gone, it meant Edward IV was never unseated from the throne again, except for eventually by his death. You would think that this would be a happily ever after moment. United Brothers, throne as secure as it's ever been for the Yorkists. The United Brothers thing didn't continue. Though I will say, there was one poignant family moment during this portion of Edward's reign. He had the bodies of his father and brother Edmund moved from their original resting place and reinterred with great ceremony in the family home. Richard served as the principal mourner. Speaking of Richard, he was regularly entrusted with authority by Edward and rewarded for his loyalty. In addition to being made Lord of the North, Edward allowed him to marry his choice, Anne Neville, who, due to the death of Edward of Lancaster, was now a widow. If you'll recall, George had married Anne's sister Isabel. George objected to this match and took control of Anne like she was his ward and not his sister-in-law. There have even been suggestions that he dressed her up like a kitchen maid to keep her hidden from Richard to prevent their marriage. It didn't work. Richard married her. A fight over the amount of family inheritance each man would get on behalf of his wife ensued, and eventually a partition was decided upon that George did not like. He resisted it and had to be forced to submit, eventually being punished by losing some of his lands as a result. In 1476, George underwent a personal blow when his wife Isabel passed away. He and Isabel had three children, two of which survived infancy, and her death came shortly after giving birth to their fourth. This baby, a boy, only outlived his mother by several weeks. Presumably, George did not take this well, nor did he take well the fact that Edward vetoed some of his proposed second wives. Edward's thwarting of his attempts at upward power mobility through marriage certainly poked at the wound still festering from back when Edward refused to give him permission to marry Isabel. 
George's behavior in the aftermath of Isabel's death and Edward's denials grew increasingly aggressive. He claimed to be convinced that Isabel had been slowly poisoned to death by a woman named Anchoret. To deal with this, George overstepped his boundaries and abused his status to push through a guilty verdict and have the woman executed. Edward's tolerance for George's behavior was wearing thin, and when he eventually learned that George took the king's justice into his own hands, it did not help matters. George reached above his station, and it was not something that could continue. Then, in 1477, one of George's retainers was put on trial for circulating treasonous writings and engaging with necromancy or dark magic to imagine the king's death. Following a guilty verdict and execution of the man, George could have let it go. But he didn't. He decided it was a good idea to have the dead man's declaration of innocence read aloud to the royal council. When Edward learned of this, he exploded and demanded George come and see him. Then Edward put him in his place, charging George with violating the laws of the realm and threatening the lives of jurors and juries. He had George arrested and thrown into the Tower of London, where he was left to think about what he had done and await his fate. But that, dear listeners, is where we must leave George for now. Make sure to listen to our next episode, which drops in two weeks. There, I'll pick up where we left off, and George will get out of the tower one way or another. We'll look at the end of Edward IV's reign, what happened when Richard was the only brother left standing, and yes, we will even talk about what happened to the children of these three men. I hope you'll join me. Until then, remember, the best stories are in the footnotes.